Chapter 1. The Events Leading Up to the Tragedy 1893-1903 One of her earliest memories was of ice-green water. She was hurrying toward the sea, then a sudden loop in the road revealed vast waves frothing lacily on the sand. And another memory. She was gazing out the window, content to watch the fall of the rain, when, without warning, her heart beat wild in my breast with pain. She was supposed to have been born in New York City, but instead she showed up prematurely at the seashore on August 22, 1893. That summer, as always, her family was living at West End, New Jersey. The Rothschilds had their routines. As soon as the children's schools closed in June, they packed up household and servants and left the city. Henry Rothschild, who had his business to attend to, joined them on Sundays. They prided themselves on renting a house at West End, which was next door to Long Branch, a seaside resort that had been the favorite spa of presidents, from Grant to Arthur, and that presumed to call itself the Monte Carlo of America. West End, slightly less exclusive, was favored by the Guggenheims and other immensely rich Jewish families. My God, no, dear, we'd never heard of those Rothschilds, as Dorothy was later to say. Nevertheless, these Rothschilds knew the fashionable places to summer, and they had enough money to be among the select. They loved Cedar Avenue with its huge gingerbread houses, the swings and screened porches, everything that accompanied living at the shore in summer. They ate big meals for breakfast, and before it grew too hot, they waded into the surf, taking care to obey the swimming flags, red for gentlemen, white for ladies. The water was always icy. Later they slowly promenaded along Ocean Avenue carrying parasols, strolling past the big hotels that had recently begun to charge four dollars a day. American plan, gawking at the casinos where derby dice rollers and roulette spinners displayed gardenias in their buttonholes. They would not have dreamed of entering. They were not those kind of people. In the evenings, bands played Sousa marches and favorites from HMS Pinafore. At West End, everybody attended the concerts. Nearly every day there was sailing and lawn tennis, and shore suppers at the beach. The best roasted clams, corn fritters with hard sauce, huckleberry pie, and it all tasted wonderful. That year a financial panic was battering the economy. In New York, on the Lower East Side, where the Rothschild money originated, people lined up on the sidewalks for free bread and soup. At the shore, people talked about the flies, but otherwise they had few complaints about their lives. On a weekend toward the end of August, a hard rain hit the shore. Water hurtled down in spears. The thunder blasted like fireworks. Trees were ripped up by the wind. By Monday morning, the storm had passed. Since the weather promised to be good, Henry Rothschild felt confident leaving his family to go back to town. Summertime was his busiest season. Shortly thereafter, Eliza Rothschild went into labor. The evening after the baby came, the shore was pounded by a West Indian cyclone that knocked the chimney off their roof. The flagpole cracked and crashed, and the walls rocked on their foundation. At any moment, it seemed like the house would collapse and crush them. After a terrible night, the children ventured forth to discover that not a bathhouse was left standing on the beach, and the old iron pier had been washed out to sea like a sandcastle. When Henry Rothschild returned to Cedar Avenue, 
he found a baby and a house that needed a new chimney. Dorothy's paternal grandparents came from Prussia, swept across the Atlantic in the wave of German-Jewish emigration after the abortive 1848 revolution. Samson and Mary Rothschild, a couple in their twenties, were concerned about the future and were afflicted, as were so many others, by New World fever. They heard about the marvels of America and began to dream radiant dreams. Being rural people, they decided to bypass New York and to seek a small town where an ambitious young man could establish himself, where people had money to spend on quality goods. Samson and Mary settled in Selma, Alabama, where their first child, Jacob Henry, Dorothy's father, was born in 1851. A few Jews lived in the area, but none in Selma, which was primarily populated with English stock. Samson sold fancy goods, embroideries, laces, all the trimmings that Southern women treasured so highly. He peddled his finery by wagon. They had two more sons, Simon and Samuel. The Rothschilds learned to speak English with a Southern accent, imitated the courteous manners of their neighbors, and suffered the anti-Semitic remarks that unthinking customers made. Samson worked tirelessly for ten years. He prospered to some extent, but he still felt restless, dissatisfied. He was nearly forty. A few southern Jewish merchants understood that war might be likely one day and formulated business strategies to their advantage. Whether Samson was equally farsighted or whether he simply became fed up with Selma is impossible to know. He packed up and moved his family to New York City in 1860. There being little demand for embroideries during the Civil War, Samson switched to menswear. By 1865, he was listed in the city directory as the proprietor of a gents' furnishing store at 294 Broadway. Elsewhere in the city lived German Jews like August Belmont, who had changed their names, become rich men, and lived in absurdly ornate palaces on Fifth Avenue. Those were not the addresses Samson dreamed about. He felt lucky to move his family, now expanded by the births of Hannah and Martin, from Avenue B to sensible and better houses in East 13th Street, and then to pastoral West 42nd Street. Based on his personal experience and immigrant faith, Samson believed that you get what you want by hard work. Like his biblical namesake, he was a hardy specimen, a proud, vigorous, physically strong man who lived into his eighties. Even then it was his mind that first failed him, not his body. Armed with self-confidence, he had just the qualities suitable for earning his bread by persuasion fused with the flamboyance required to make a sale. The founding father of these folk of mud and flame, as Dorothy called them, was undisturbed about fiddling for his dinner, however crude he may have seemed to subsequent generations. Samson's eldest son had a personality similar to his own, hardy, aggressive, and industrious. Jacob Rothschild was smart and highly ambitious, but sometimes his ambitions tended to run along alarming lines. Jacob disliked his given name. During adolescence, he began calling himself Henry, his own middle name, which must have sounded more American to him. In the course of his life, his first name passed through several incarnations, but he never tampered with his surname. There may have been Rothschilds who were butchers, but others were lords and bankers. It was an aristocratic name. Everything else he inherited from Samson was open to the winds of revision. 
1868, the family rented half a modest two-family dwelling at 124 West 27th Street, not far from stylish Madison Square, where the best stores and restaurants were located. Some months after the Rothschilds moved to the new house, the neighboring flat was occupied by a machinist named Thomas Marston and his wife Caroline and their three children, Eliza Annie, Frank, and Susan. Henry, nay Jacob, Rothschilds, is recorded in the census taker's book as 18 years old. Eliza Annie Marston is 19. Living in the same house, seeing each other every day, they fell in love. Even to a romantic young woman, Henry's religion must have presented an insurmountable obstacle. By the standards of both families, marriage was unthinkable. Eliza Marston had been born in 1851 into a family of highly skilled English gunsmiths. Although, in the 20th century, certain Marstons decided that their forebears arrived on the Mayflower, the plain fact is that Eliza's grandparents, Stanhope and Elizabeth Marston, came to New York in the late 1830s with three children and two of Stanhope's younger brothers. This was not a family that went its individual ways. The men worked together sharing what amounted to an obsession with firearms, lived in neighboring streets and named their children for each other. As early as 1853, when Eliza was two, Stanhope and his brother William already held a number of important patents and had systematically set about making themselves rivals of Colt and Derringer. The Marstons manufactured percussion pepper boxes, pistols, and revolvers at a two-floor plant on Jane Street, where they employed 140 workers. That same year, their breech-loading and self-cleaning rifles, on display at the Crystal Palace exhibition, were greatly admired by Horace Greeley, who later visited Jane Street and wrote a glowing description of the Marston Arms.